0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so excited you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Wesper Chen.
0: And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link.
1: First link.
2: link. Well guys, New Atlas is reporting that a quote unquote functional cure for type one diabetes has passed its first human trials.
0: Ooh. I have a friend with a daughter with diabetes, so this is very interesting.
2: I think most of us know someone Mm -hmm. who, if Mm -hmm. not only having diabetes, type 1. And type 1, again, is the autoimmune one. It's not developed through, you know, diet or bad habits or whatever people try to shame you into having. (laughs) But a pair of new studies, and the two of them, are reporting results from a landmark type 1 diabetes human clinical trial and it was testing the safety and efficacy of an implantable device that contains stem cells designed to mature into insulin-secreting cells. Wow. Wow. Now, they found that the experimental implant was found to be safe. They found it was well-tolerated and mildly effective, which is giving some promising signs that if they can optimize it even further, the treatment could present diabetics with a quote-unquote functional cure. I know I'm really emphasizing that quote-unquote because (laughs) this has been a big hope for a lot of people for a really long time. This is a treatment that's been following on prior successes where they've transplanted functional pancreatic islet cells from donors into patients. But the cool thing about this is that instead of having to rely on donor cells, this new device uses human pluripotent stem cells, which are known as PSCs and they've been engineered to develop into pancreatic cells. What they do is they load stem cells into the device and implant it into diabetic patients. Those cells then hopefully, as the article notes, mature (laughs) in the body, which become islet tissue that includes the beta cells that produce insulin when needed. On the first 26 patients treated with the device, insulin requirements were reduced by an average of 20%. So this is modest, but it does point to some really promising eventualities if we can get this optimized. Mm -hmm. Another issue that they're going to have to deal with is the need for the device to be accompanied by constant immunosuppressive medication. So without suppressing the immune system your body will reject the implanted device.
0: Well, and in particular, type one diabetes, my understanding is that your immune system is attacking the pancreatic cells in the first place, which is why you no longer have any functioning ones. So it would seem to me that the immune system would also automatically want to attack these.
2: Exactly. And not only that, the only serious adverse effects that they found in this prelim human trial were from the immunosuppressive treatment that you have to take with the implant. So the implant is actually safer, quote unquote, than the treatment you need so your body doesn't reject it. But as we continue to optimize with future trials, we need to figure out how long do these cells stay viable and produce insulin. We need to figure out where the best site in the body is for the device to be implanted. But These are early findings that have a lot of promise to target type one diabetes in the future.
0: Yeah, human trials is way better than mouse trials. That's a big, big step forward.
2: Absolutely.
0: And you know, it hadn't occurred to me, I was thinking of course you would put it in the pancreas, but you don't have to. Like maybe if you hide it down in the big toe, maybe the immune system doesn't see it. (laughs) Like it doesn't go all the way down there sometimes, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Next link.
1: Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from brooklyneagle.com, and it's titled the Search for Mysterious Noise in Brooklyn Heights Turns into Massive Crowd-Sourced Investigation.
0: Ooh. Ooh. All right. What kind of
1: noise? So, <laughs> yeah. the noise started at the beginning of November. <laughs> it was described by residents of North Brooklyn Heights as a mechanical chirp or a high-pitched repeating whirr. It had a strange way of seeming to move around the neighborhood depending on where you stood. Heights resident Victoria Owens wrote in an email to the Brooklyn Eagle, the noise is there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The streets are filled with it. Wow. I can hear it in every room of my home with all the windows closed, and it's interfering with sleep at night and the ability to focus and be productive during the day.
2: Okay, New Yorkers are not known for their noise sensitivity in particular, yeah. so this has to be pretty intense.
0: Yeah.
1: So Owens joined the Brooklyn Heights discussion group on the Nextdoor app and found other exasperated neighbors. Michael Sturchak wrote on November 4th, it's a (laughs) high-pitched ZZZZ, you know, he wrote it, so that's my emphasis. Um, The noise was also noted in the Brooklyn Heights blog. Someone named Mike Mike described it (laughs) as a nonstop fan slash ringer sound, while Pineapple said it sounded like an alarm, which began around the time the gristied scaffolding went up. Huh. Wilson Burris told the Eagle, I filed my first 311 complaint on November 5th, and they closed it saying they couldn't find the source. Ah. I can honestly say it sounded like nothing I had ever heard before, especially since the sound changed, depending on where you were. Huh. Next door members had heard about the screeching condo in Cobble Hill that was eventually <laughs> traced huh. to poorly designed balcony railings. Oh no. Some speculated that maybe the noise was caused by the scaffolding above Gristeed's. So Burroughs called the scaffolding company. The company insisted the noise had nothing to do with their structure. On November 6th, she convinced the 84th Precinct to take a look at the scaffolding. However, the police did not get back to her on Monday. Oh. She called again and had a lovely conversation with the dispatcher who complained about the volume of noise in her own apartment. Ah,
0: that's when they get involved, when it affects one of their own. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah.
1: The uh, Brooklyn Heights Association, BHA, was the only organization that took the noise complaint seriously. BHA searched several buildings and ruled out MTA construction as the source of the noise. They also contacted local officials and the Department of Environmental Protection, or DEP. DEP inspectors, however, didn't find the noise to be loud enough to issue a violation, nor could they locate the source. Burroughs said, At this point, it felt like the sound would be part of our lives forever. On November 10th, Teray Gill, assistant property manager at Cadman Towers, sent out an optimistic email. We have narrowed it down to the NYU dormitory. We have high hopes the dormitory super will be able to detect the problem and have it fixed by today, she wrote. It's college kids. It's always college kids. But the source of the noise was not the NYU dormitory. And the problem was not fixed that day. (laughs) So by now, the management at Cadman Tower was getting testy as increasingly strident complaints flooded their inbox. Many neighbors insisted that the noise was coming from construction on the third floor deck. Management took some neighborhood building supers on tours of the third floor to prove that the noise was not originating there.
2: Are there just people wandering around crazed?
1: Honestly, that's kind of exactly what it sounds like. Yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah,
0: it sounds like it was just a consensus. Like, well, we got seven guys standing in one place and they all say it didn't
2: come from here. So it's not our fault. Like, how? I mean, yeah. (laughs) Like, we can't find it doesn't necessarily mean it's not coming from here. But how else can you determine? This is so horrible. I feel bad for laughing. I'm sorry, New York.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, this has been going on at this point for about seven days. Oh. This started on November 4th, and we're now into like, November 10th, I believe. Oh. Uh, so, Agri wrote to the task force, At this point, we have spoken to every building super adjoining Cadman and have been on most of their roofs. Another possibility is the new MTA construction trailer parked on Henry. We have attempted to talk to the people there but got no cooperation. Nextdoor members reported that the Cadman Towers email box had become full and further emails were being rejected. <laughs> and then Toba Potoski enters the story. So on November 11th, a member of the Nextdoor group texted Toba Potoski who had been the board president of Cadman Towers for 16 years. This unnamed person told him she thought the mysterious sound might be coming from the cooling fans near Gristides. Potoski walked to the area and listened, but quickly realized the suggestion was a non-starter. He texted back, there are no cooling fans about Gristides. (laughs) The person replied, Toby, I shared your number with a few people in the neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) Oi, Potoski thought, and Oi would become a theme for him in the coming days. Oh no. So, Potoski called Super Davila and Egri, not knowing they had been engaged in the noise issue for more than a week already. Uh, Potoski said they were struggling, especially Julio, since the noise permeated his apartment as well this entire time. Confidently, I told them all I would find it. (laughs) Oi. Egri felt she was taking the brunt of the neighborhood's anger. There were angry, nasty people calling, emailing, barging into my office, cursing, she said. On November 17th, so about 13 days into this, wow. Davila sent a drone flying above the courtyard. <laughs> the next day, he went around with a GoPro trying to view every corner of the scaffolding. Both high-tech attempts failed to locate the noise. Dang. And then finally, the breakthrough the neighborhood had been hoping for happened on November 18th. Potoski got a text from his wife, Ronnie. Almost home, stopping to see if X, name withheld, is back from trip. Lieutenant X was a Cadman Towers resident who had left for an extended vacation a couple of weeks earlier. Oh, no. Wow. X was a longtime friend of the Petoskies, and Ronnie had a sneaking suspicion that somehow X had something <laughs> to do with the noise. Oh, no. So you can kind of imagine why the name has been withheld. <laughs> mm mm-hmm. <laughs> relates what happened next. Standing in the hallway of our lifelong friend, we hear the faint chirping through the door. <gasps> what is that noise? Ronnie asked. I open the door. The chirping sound is loud, very loud. I walk to the terrace and pull the plug on the Bird X Super One Hundred. The what? Ah, uh, yeah. What? <laughs> Ronnie Petoski took a photo of the unit. It shows a Bird X Transonic Pro small animal repeller system available for thirty five forty nine at Target. The device, installed in a high balcony, was emitting both audible noise and noise so high-pitched that only those with sensitive hearing could pick it up. Oh right, because that's how those things are supposed to work, is humans can't hear them at all. Yes! Right. Researchers studying ultrasound say it presents a growing problem in urban spaces. Young people, some adult women and others with acute hearing, can become irritated and even sickened by the noise. Potoski called building management with the news that they had finally solved the mystery. I turned the machine on and off so they could hear it. Julio saw that the box was set for rat repellent. We don't have rats. <laughs> Potoski said, The next day, Ronnie received flowers and other assorted gifts and gift cards. Not surprised, she's been my hero for 30 years. Oh. Wow. By the time the source was discovered, the BHA had enlisted the help of three city agencies, <laughs> one incoming city council member, and numerous building supers and nearby residents. Oh my gosh. My huge appreciation to everyone who lent a hand, and of course to Ronnie Potoski, who ended the saga for everyone.
2: In the most unconventional happenstance way possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, okay. so they're not saying that the machine malfunctioned.
0: They're just saying that some people were overly sensitive and could hear it when theoretically they shouldn't have been able to.
1: Yeah, well, the thing is that it did have audible noise, so regular noise that humans could hear, and supersonic, so people who could hear sensitively, Mm -hmm. they could go to other areas and they'd hear the sound differently because of the, I assume, the acoustic dynamics, which is why it was so hard to track down.
2: Either we need to outlaw these and make them not a thing, or we wait until the military inevitably creates a human setting on it. Right, right. Oh, yeah,
1: I mean, the military already has this technology. Uh, Yeah. 100%. and
0: Aww. I mean I don't know it seems like the rat setting worked pretty good on humans anyway everyone was going <laughs> yeah. nuts. they were losing their mind people would have started yeah, well, moving out so but
2: only the un- mm-hmm. only only the no I'm not gonna go with that joke you're gonna edit that out I even <laughs> <laughs> not even going there
1: so now you know for $35 you too can ruin an entire neighborhood
2: <laughs> <laughs> Halloween 2022 get ready oh, that's boy. right <laughs>
1: <laughs> next link Next
0: link. All right. Well, this next article is a sort of informational follow up to a different article that went viral last week. You may have seen it. This one is from CBC Radio, and it's called It Broke Something Inside Me. Oh. And the original article it's digging into was actually a restaurant review from a blog site called Everywhereist titled We Eat at the Worst Michelin Starred Restaurant Ever. (laughs) Bold. Yeah. So the restaurant review was by a travel writer named Geraldine DeRuiter, and it was written about a small avant-garde restaurant called Bro's in Lecce, Italy. For the grammar (laughs) nerds out there who are curious, that's both plural and possessive. B-R-O-S apostrophe. Hmm. And On the surface, the restaurant style is not too hard to understand. You know, it's part of that molecular gastronomy trend where you don't order anything off a menu. You just pay a flat rate for the meal. And then the chef sends out a series of small plates with various interesting things that you've never had before. So, you know, right off the bat, if you're going to one of these places, you shouldn't be expecting an Applebee's, right? (laughs) Right. And some (laughs) of the things that DeRuiter and her friends were served seem pretty logical for a place like this, including a single bite of crab meat, some edible paper and a, quote, reconstituted orange slice that honestly there's a picture it just <laughs> it looks like one of those jello shots that people put inside an orange peel like it doesn't look that fancy i'll be honest <laughs> but other items on the 27 course menu did seem to be pushing the envelope a little bit including a course of fried cheese balls which the servers insisted were made from rancid ricotta when uh, mm-hmm. Deruter suggested that perhaps they meant aged or fermented she was told no rancid. (laughs) 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 The real kicker, though, and probably the reason this article went viral, was a dish called Limoniamo, which was a citrus foam served inside a little bowl that was actually a plaster cast of the chef's open lips. (laughs) So it's basically like a foaming mouth sculpture. And the guests were told that they would be given no spoons for this dish, but were instead expected to sort of French kiss the open mouth and lick the foam out? Yeah. Deruder said, At some point, I accidentally made eye contact with a friend across the table, and it brought our friendship to a new level that I wish we had not
2: reached. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is such a bold thing to be doing in this age of coronavirus. Right. (laughs) Direct from the mouth that you don't know. Yeah.
0: I mean, it was definitely avant-garde. No one's saying Mm -hmm. it was a normal restaurant experience, but... She wrote this pretty mean, aggressively negative review. So CBC Radio reached out to Bro's chef, Floriano Pellegrino, for comment, and he sent them back a three-page PDF expounding on the nature of art. Ooh. (laughs) Wow. It began on the first page with a basic line drawing of a man on a horse, and Pellegrino wrote, Being able to draw a man on a horse does not make you an artist. The result (laughs) of your talent can be beautiful to look at, but it is not art. McDonald's knows perfectly how to make a hamburger that almost everybody likes. He then moved on to a famous oil painting of Napoleon on a horse, saying, among other things, The problem with this artist is that many artists have made paintings like him. I admire the quality, but I am bored with spectacular paintings like that. It's impressive, (laughs) but it's shallow. (laughs) Then finally, on the third page, he pasted in an abstract painting that perhaps could be interpreted as a man on a horse and wrote, Does art have to be beautiful? Not necessary. Contemporary art does not provide you with answers, but offers you great questions, like what is art, what is food, what is a man on a horse. And he does go on a little longer, but they have the (laughs) entire PDF in the article if you want to read it. But I mean, in the end, Daruder does seem to be walking back her position a little bit. Now she said, once I step away from the hilarity of it, I do believe that he is making a rather legitimate statement about the nature of art. And, you know, I think part of her reassessment probably stems from the fact that since her review went viral, she's gotten a fair amount of negative feedback on how mean she was, Mm -hmm. to which she said, I used to be a kind person before I went here. I don't know what happened. It broke something inside me. (laughs) And for his part, Chef Pellegrino's statement wasn't entirely without snark either. His last line reads, we thank Mrs. X. I don't remember her name. For making us get to where we had not yet arrived. (laughs) We are out of stock of Limoniamo. Thank you very much.
2: Nice. So
0: so yeah, but it is, uh, it's still there. Their reservation list is probably pretty long at this point since they've gotten so much publicity. I think a lot of people are going.
2: But what if the mouth foam comes to define them? You know, like, I'm just here for the mouth foam, but we made this amazing hand cheese. I don't know.
1: (laughs) They just ironically end up commodifying their mouth phone piece, and it's the only thing that anybody wants to buy. That's right. They start
0: selling them at Target. You can get... (laughs) 35 bucks. (laughs) Pick up your mouse repellent and your human repellent at the same
1: time. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link.
0: link.
2: All right, y'all. It's time for us to talk about... Pando, the world's largest organism, and this comes from Atlas Hmm. Obscura. It's in the Wasatch Mountains of the western United States, and just kind of looks like a woodland of individual trees with really pretty white bark and small leaves that flutter, but it's 47,000 genetically identical stems that arise wow. from an interconnected root network. And this single genetic individual weighs about 6,000 metric tons. Hmm. We know panda has been around for thousands of years, potentially up to 14,000 years, despite most stems only living for about 130 years. Because it's been around for so long, and because it's in this really remote part of the Wasatch Mountains, It means that a whole ecosystem of 68 plant species and animals have evolved and been supported under its shade. So this ecosystem relies on aspen remaining healthy and upright. But even though Pando is protected by the U.S. Forest Service, and we're not going to be cutting it down anytime soon, it is in danger of disappearing due to several other factors. So we've got overgrazing by deer and elk, which is one of the biggest worries. We used to have a lot more wolves and cougars to keep those numbers in check but the article very carefully states herds are now much larger because of the loss of these predators. Reminder that <laughs> the loss of these predators also have to do with humans hunting them. So I don't know maybe you right. think that, but deer and elk do <laughs> tend to congregate in Pando because the protection that the woodland receives means that they don't get hunted there. Hmm. As older trees die or fall down, the light will reach the woodland floor, which is what stimulates the new clonal stems to start growing. But when these animals gnaw off the tops of these newly forming stems, which are super delicious, it kills the stems, right?
0: It's the veal of the aspen world.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's a delicacy. It is the yeah. mouth foam of the aspen world. <laughs> and so unfortunately, what this means is that in large portions of Pando, There's not as much new growth, and the exception is this one area that was fenced off a few decades ago to remove some dying trees. So there they've seen some successful regeneration of clonal stems, and the dense growth is referred to as the bamboo garden. Isn't that lovely? But it's not just the young stems that are being affected in good old Pando. It's also the older stems that are being affected by at least three diseases sooty bark canker, which sounds like some kind of Dickensian (laughs) disease, leaf spot, and conch fungal disease, which is a genre of music I desperately wish to hear in my lifetime. Right. (laughs) While plant diseases have developed and thrived in Aspen stands for millennia, we're not really sure what the long-term effect on the ecosystem may be because we don't have the new growth we're used to, And obviously the fastest growing threat we got to talk about is climate change. Obviously it inhabits an Alpine region surrounded by desert. So it's no stranger to warm temperatures or drought, but as climate change threatens the size and lifespan of the tree, it also threatens the whole ecosystem that it hosts. So we've got a few things that are not going well for it, but it has survived previous disease, wildfire and grazing. But we've got conservation groups in the forest system that are working to protect this tree. There's even a new group called Friends of Pando, and they want to make the tree (laughs) accessible to virtually everyone through 360 video recordings. And I'm sure they meant to say 360 degree, but listen, Mm -hmm. nature bathing is real. Anytime you're getting stressed, just go out and flood your senses with nature. Allergies notwithstanding, it does make a difference.
0: Yeah. I mean, they say Pando is Latin, but it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like a clown
2: name. I (laughs) I see a little Hello Kitty mascot, but it's just a tree with like super groovy roots. Pando! (laughs) I would buy that merchandise.
0: Yeah, I think my money's on Pando surviving for the long term. I mean, it's good that we care and we should do what we can, but I I bet Pando outlives us. (laughs) Yeah. Next link?
1: Next Next link. link! This article comes to us from bbc.com, and it's titled, Saudi Camel Beauty Pageant Cracks Down on Cosmetic Enhancements. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, this sounds kind of funny at first, uh, you know, like lipstick and mascara on camels or whatever. Yeah. But uh, when you get further into it, you realize it's pretty messed up. Because more than 40 camels have been disqualified from Saudi Arabia's beauty pageant for receiving <laughs> Botox injections. Oh, oh no. And other wow. cosmetic enhancements. Yeah.
0: Like, okay, I'm I'm still hung up on camel beauty pageant. Like, never mind what they're doing beyond that. They have a camel beauty
2: pageant? <laughs> well, surely this yep. had to be like an offshoot of like almost 4-H in Texas. We have, you know, the ag right. things where it's like you're getting graded on the beauty and health, I guess, of whatever. Creature right. Or have.
0: the Westminster dog show. They're like, oh, mm-hmm. this dog's flanks are perfectly proportioned or
1: whatever. Well,
2: maybe that's because of Botox, y'all. It could be.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the contest is a highlight of the King Abdulaziz Camel Festival, where $66 million in prize money is at <gasps> wow. stake.
2: Okay. I can see how that would drive some people to the needle.
1: Yeah. Yep. When you have that much money on the line, a little animal cruelty <laughs> uh, seems like not such an obstacle, oh, I guess. why. Not that that is an endorsement right, by Right, right. <laughs> <encouraging> uh, it. <laughs> Yeah, so key attributes include long, droopy lips, a big nose, and a shapely hump. (laughs) Judges used advanced technology to uncover tampering with camels on a scale not seen before, the state-run Saudi Press Agency reported. All contestants were first led into a hall where their external appearance and movements were examined by specialists. Their heads, necks, and torsos were then scanned with x-ray and 3D ultrasound machines, and samples were taken for genetic analysis and other tests. (laughs) 27 contestants in the cup for the Majaheim camels alone were disqualified for having stretched body parts, and 16 were ejected for having received injections.
2: Oh, gosh.
1: Yeah. The organizers of the pageant, the Camel Club, were cited as saying that they were keen to halt all acts of tampering and deception in the beautification of camels and (laughs) promising to impose strict penalties on manipulators. Wow. This part is where it gets sad. They described how Botox was injected into camels' lips, noses, Mm. jaws, and other parts of their heads to relax muscles. Collagen fillers were used to make their lips and noses bigger, and hormones were given to boost muscle Mm. growth. Rubber bands were also used on animals to make body parts bigger than normal by restricting the flow of blood. Jason Baker, senior vice president of animal rights group PETA Asia, described the beauty contest as a cruel farce. Subjecting any animal to a cosmetic procedure from ear cropping to Mm -hmm. declawing, dehorning, and filler injections is hideously cruel and shows the humans who use such tactics to be extremely ugly, he said. Mr. Baker said animal welfare issues need to be addressed throughout the Middle East and Asia and called on Saudi authorities to crack down on any event that exploits or abuses animals.
2: Good luck. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Some 30,000 camel owners from as far away as the US, Russia, and France are participating in the King Abdulaziz Camel Festival, which is the largest in the world and lasts 40 days. Wow! Which... That's a lot of camels.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of camels. Like, I, I how did we not have
1: photos of this festival I know, before? it's like
2: the Olympics of camel. Like. Yeah. yeah.
1: And so as many as 100,000 tourists are also expected daily at the 12 square mile festival site, 62 miles northeast of the Saudi capital of Riyadh.
0: Wow. It's pretty impressive that we've never heard of this event before. And yet now we find it's not only such a massive event, but I mean, of course there's this amount of tampering going on. When there's oh, yeah. that much money at stake and that many tourists mm-hmm. coming in for 40 days?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, if you told me they injected the Kentucky Derby cars with Botox, I would not be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, is that not what that is? I don't know what they Oh, horses, horses right. <laughs> Sorry. I was thinking of Austin in F1, so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Frankly, you could inject a Lamborghini with Botox, too. It might make a difference. Who knows? That's true.
2: (laughs) I know they have injection technology in there somewhere.
1: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, next link.
2: Next Next link. link. All right. Well, I hope we've all eaten
0: lunch already because this next article (laughs) is about hippo feces. Yay! Yes. (laughs) It's from science.org and it's called Pooping hippos create community guts in African ponds. Hmm. So Hmm. broadly speaking, of course, it's about the microbiome in our guts, which is a subject we're big fans of on this Mm -hmm. podcast. And the opening paragraph is full of great links to other microbiome studies on how it plays a role in autism and nutrition and all kinds of stuff. But this one is about hippos in particular and how they generally tend to eat on land and then go back into the water to poop. And it's been known for a while that this process fertilizes the water and affects what other species can thrive in the hippos' ponds. But now a new study has confirmed that it isn't just the nutrients they're putting out, but the living bacteria as well that's having an effect.
1: Ooh. Hmm.
0: So researchers led by Christopher Dutton, an ecologist at the University of Florida, collected water from hippo pools all along the Mara River, which flows through the Serengeti in Kenya and Tanzania. And during the dry season, some of these pools get cut off from the river's flow. So the team sequenced RNA from both the pools in general and pieces of hippo dung in particular, separating them into moderate flow, low flow, or no flow categories to assess the impact of ever more concentrated dung in these pools that are not getting sort of flushed out by the river. Mm -hmm. So the water in no-flow pools contained almost no oxygen, and the less oxygen the researchers found, the better the gut microbes did. Lab tests indicated that the microbes themselves then further altered the water's chemistry in their favor, creating an ever-stronger metagut that would be taken back in by other hippos and basically shared throughout the herd until they all had a denser, more powerful microbiome. Which is good for the hippos, but not necessarily the rest of the ecology, because once the rains come back and these pools rejoin the river, the concentrated pool water can cause mass die off of other species downstream who didn't have six months to adapt to it as it grew. The researchers also note that if one hippo gets sick with a pathogen, it's likely going to spread to every other hippo in the herd very quickly if they're sharing a no flow pool during the dry season. And Robert Naiman, an emeritus ecologist at the University of Washington, says that now they've confirmed this happens with hippos, it's very likely that other creatures like alligators experience a similar phenomenon in the bodies of water that they live in. And really, at the end of the day, it's just a great reminder, I think, that anytime you step into a natural body of water, you are soaking in animal poo. So, you know, just keep that in mind. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. link. This quickie from Health Europa notes that a groundbreaking chewing gum potentially mitigates COVID transmission. Oh. Ah. Good news, everyone. (laughs) I mean,
0: I'm so used at this point to, like, ridiculous things. I'm suspicious.
2: But if if it's legit, I'll listen. All right. Sure. A collaborative endeavor between researchers from the Wistar Institute and Fraunhofer USA have determined that a novel chewing gum with a plant-grown protein in it can trap viral load in saliva and lowers transmission. Hmm. Want to look at the findings? They're published in the journal Molecular Therapy. The research is still in the early stages, but it could be administered to patients whose infection status is unknown or for Mm -hmm. dental checkups when masks must be removed which I have to admit confused me because if you're in there for a dental checkup and have to remove your mask, gum? You can't
0: chew gum. (laughs) Yeah, no, your mouth has got to be wide open.
2: But I'm thinking like if we had to, you know, go against longstanding tradition of you're in school now, here's some gum to chew as opposed to, you know, that might be super helpful. That's
0: right. I already chew gum all day. So now I'm going to have to have like two different
2: kinds of gum, I guess. (laughs) 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 <laughs> have, have double pieces. Hey, as long as it keeps you alive so we can keep doing the podcast, that's all that matters to me.
0: That's true. That should be all that matters to anybody is that I personally stay alive and the three of us can just keep on going through the apocalypse.
1: I mean, that's at the top of my to-do list every day, Jen, so. <laughs> that's right.
0: All right, well, that is all we have time for. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Death of a Lobster Man, this dark matter radio could tune in to new physics, and the innovative technology that powered the Inca. So all that and more can be found at damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. We will be off for the holiday season for the next two weeks. We hope everybody has a nice holiday and a good winter break. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Wei Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.